I'll start off by reading my text verse for the morning, and I'm going I'm to talk about the story where the uh, rich young ruler came to Jesus. Okay, I'm going to read a couple verses here at the front, and then I'm going to read a few more as we progress through this message. Uh, I'm going to start with Mark 10, verses 17 and 18. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. The title of my message this morning is Not Good Enough. Would you pray with me this morning as we move forward in this message time? Father God, we love you today. I thank you for this wonderful church and for your wonderful presence. We love you so much, Lord, and we need you so desperately. We need you. It is the, the air in our lungs is from you. It's your breath in our lungs. And so we pour out our praise today, God. We thank you for this wonderful time of worship, and Lord, for this message, I ask that the words that are of you today would do your work in each one of our hearts, and you would seal it in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We'll be sure to give you all the praise and the glory, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. amen. So, not good enough. Do you ever feel like you don't measure up? Don't raise your hands, please. We're not trying to out anybody today, because the fact of the matter is, I know every one of us feels that way at times, don't we? Uh, whether it's in work or school or relationships, friendships, in marriage. Don't elbow your spouse if you're sitting next to him. It's not about that today. Today we're talking about our, our relationship with our Lord. Um, but I know in personal relationships, we definitely feel like we don't measure up, don't we? A lot of us live feeling like we are constantly disappointing people in our life. And uh, some of us might even say we understand why they're disappointed because we're disappointed in ourselves. Nobody knows ourselves better than we do, right? And so we can live constantly having to deal with that in our life. In fact, polls suggest that at least 80% of society feels like they don't measure up, feels like they're not good enough. That's a large chunk of society. I'd actually like to know what the other 20% are saying. They might just be too proud to admit that they don't struggle with it, because I feel like we all probably do. But even polls would say that 80% struggle with feeling like they don't measure up. You know, that's, that's very common for us, but I, and I think in, in personal relationships, it's one thing, but how many of you feel like you don't measure up in your relationship with the Lord? I think we all do that sometimes, too. But when, when we think of ourselves in relationship with the God of the universe and how incredible he is and how amazing he is, our insecurities will come out even in our relationship with him, feeling like we just are not good enough, that we just don't measure up. In fact, I've shared multiple times from this pulpit that I lived my younger years dealing with that, even as a Christian. In my adolescent years, my early teen years, I felt like I didn't measure up. I lived condemned. I, had, I told you guys before, I had this checklist when I go to bed at night, most nights, where I, I had a mental checklist I had to go through before I would allow myself to go to sleep. And well, part of that checklist was making sure that I asked God to forgive me of any sins I might have committed that day. Because I, I felt like if I didn't, and I had somehow died in my sleep, that I wasn't going to go to heaven. That's living like you don't measure up. And that is not God's heart for us. It's not even close to his heart for us. But you know, the human nature is to be very insecure. We don't like to talk about it. We like to act as secure as we, are, as we can possibly be. We do everything to put on a facade of security. And, and as we grow in our life, we can feel more and more secure. But you know, security comes by understanding who you are in Christ. In no other place does security come. All the other security that we think we have, whether it's financial, relational, uh, having power and authority that we want to have, all of that is built on toothpicks. None of it's real, because the real, the real security comes from inside, and it's who we are in Jesus, and knowing that our life is not our own, it's actually his. And so our insecurity can come out, and it comes out 
and it even translates in our relationship with Jesus. And we feel like this all the time. So this young man comes to Jesus in this story in Mark 10, and he tries to impress him. He wants to talk to him about being good. You know, this guy, he was a, the, it says he was a rich young ruler, so he had a lot of things going for him. He was wealthy, he had youth going for him, and he was successful. He uh, obviously had some authority. He was a ruler, so he had power. He had political power. He had, he had everything going for him. And he saw Jesus, and he thought, I'll go to this Jesus guy and get a couple more arrows for my quiver. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to impress Jesus, too, because I impress everybody else in my life, so now I'm going to impress him, too. And he comes to him, and he says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Thinking he was going to come to him and impress him by, you know, Jesus was going to say, oh, wow, you're this amazing young man with all this power and authority and wealth and everything going for you, and you want, to, you want something from me? And he thought he was going to impress Jesus. Well, how many know it's not easy to impress Jesus? What impresses him is us giving him our heart. And this man came with an arrogance, and a, but it was dripping with insecurity. And so Jesus engaged him. He talked to him. In fact, I'm going to read the next verse, the next two verses. In Mark 9, in 10, 19, and 20, he says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So now this guy's starting to feel good about himself. He's saying, oh, yeah, Jesus told me the things I got to do, and I already do them. So he's thinking, I'm ahead of the curve. I've got things going on. Now, now Jesus is really going to be impressed with me because I can tell him I did all these things from my youth, which it, the funny thing is Jesus knows his heart because he's God, so Jesus knows what's really going on. But this guy's thinking he's impressing Jesus, and he's going to really blow him away. And he's even probably thinking to himself, Jesus just said that no one is good except God alone, but yet everything he told me I have to do, I can tell him I've already done. So he's feeling really good. So let's move on and see what Jesus says and how he responds to him. Verses 21 and 22, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now let me stop right there for a second. Jesus loves us even in our insecurity, even in our attempts to impress him. Jesus has never browbeaten us. He's not beating us over the head with his Bible. He's not telling us how how much we don't measure up, when we don't feel good enough, those are not things coming from God. It says he loved him. That's, a power, that's the best part of this whole passage. It says Jesus loved him. Then he said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This is actually a very tragic story. And, you know, if we are honest with ourselves, we can see ourselves in this rich young ruler. Because he came to Jesus thinking something was going to happen, and he actually got his heart exposed. And he didn't like that. He didn't like anybody seeing his heart. He had authority and power and everything that a young person could want, and Jesus exposed his heart right there on the spot. And so he ended up going away very, very sad. And I wonder how often we try to impress God with our posture, with the, the things that we're going to do the, to try to be good. How often do we do the things we do as Christians to try to actually impress God? That it's coming from a heart of wanting to make ourselves feel better about our relationship with God. And I'm not saying that to, I'm not pointing out to you guys. I think we all do it. You know, we go to church, we read our Bible, we have a Jesus fish on the back of our car. We try to do good things. We post scriptures on our social media accounts. We, we do these things that are, that are good things. And, and sometimes it does come from a heart of just overflowing out of love for Jesus. But there are times it comes from a place of wanting to impress him, wanting to show him how much we love him. 
and, how, and trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. But see, here's the twist, church. Man wants to figure out how we can be just a little bit better. This man does. He wants to figure out how we can be just a little bit better and how he can do a few more things so that God would accept him and so he would have more to add to his life. But Jesus was just wanting him to give him his heart. He, Jesus doesn't want us to be better, not for better sake. He wants our heart. And this young man was not willing to give it to him. In fact, if you look at this passage, it's very interesting because what Jesus said to him, Jesus literally told him, his question was, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer to him, part of his answer was literally, oh, well, you have to go sell everything you have and give all your money to the poor. Well, that's not how you inherit eternal life, right? Even before the new covenant, to walk with God did not mean selling everything you have and being poor. Yet that's what Jesus tells him. But he told him that because he was trying to expose his heart. And this is, the, this is something that's really interesting about all of this, is that this man came and did everything he should have done right. On the outward appearance, he did everything right. It says he came to him, he even fell down to his knees. He got on his knees before Jesus. This kid was Pentecostal, guys. He got before Jesus, he probably had his hands raised, you know. He gets before Jesus on his knees. He had the right posture. He said the right things, or he thought he said the right things, but it didn't benefit him. Because he was only looking to try to get out of Jesus what he could get out of him. And see, here's, th this is the part that I think is, is so heartbreaking for me when I, when I read this passage, is seeing that there's so much of this even in the church, where we're trying to have the right posture without really having to give him all of our heart. You know, there's, there's church leaders right now that are saying, they're talking about, I, I follow all kinds of guys, I, I read all kinds of stuff, I, you know, believe it or not, been pastoring this church for two months. I don't have it all figured out yet. Um, and so I'm trying to learn from people that have been doing it longer than me or a lot smarter than me. And there's a lot of church leaders that I'm reading right now that are saying that even when this virus is gone and the, the pandemic is over and we're back to normal, that there's about 20 to 30, 40 percent of church people that will never come back. And those are the people that come to church because they need to check the box. They need to feel better about themselves. They're trying to be good. They're the, they're the rich young ruler coming to Jesus saying, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And they're answering their own question saying, well, I need to go to church because that's what you do in the South. Uh, I need to, you know, I need to at least tell people I read my Bible every once in a while. At least, I at least need to have one that looks like I read it. And I have to do these things. And you have these people that will come to church and they come a couple times a month or whenever, but it's, it's not because out of an overflow of loving Jesus, it's to appease their guilt. And so what's happened over this pandemic for three months, in some cases longer, churches have been closed for in-person services. So these people have had three months of guilt-free staying at home on Sunday morning. They said, I can't even go to church. So what am I going to do? And so they've had all this guilt-free staying at home. And all of a sudden, that, that, that guilt's appeased because now they don't have a choice. So now they've formed this habit because a lot of people would come to church habitually, just out of habit, because that's kind of what I do. And so now when church is going to open back up, those people are nowhere to be seen. Because all they were trying to do was have the right posture. They're trying to look the part, but not really willing to give their heart. And when Jesus says, I don't want your posture, I want your heart, those are the people that walk away sad. Because they had great wealth. They have great wealth. It doesn't matter if it's money, whatever it is, there's some idolatry in life that will not allow them to give their heart fully to Jesus. And if Jesus calls me on it, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to hang my head, and I'm going to walk away sad. 
because that's not what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for, Jesus, is for you to validate me and say, oh yeah, you're doing good, keep doing that. Keep, keep it up, son. You're, you're checking off all the boxes, so you're in my good graces. You do a couple more things, and I'll make sure you're blessed financially. You do a couple more things, I'll make sure you find a good spouse. You do, and, and, and we want to have this list of rules. You know, we make fun of the Pharisees because the Pharisees added so many rules to the law. By the time Jesus came, there was, I don't remember how many it was. There, he had, they had dozens and dozens. I think it was hundreds of rules to the law. And we make fun of them and, and roast them for it, but we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We make up the rules for ourselves. We have our own list of rules that we think, well, this is how a Christian should act. So that's what I'm going to do. When in reality, we're just trying to have the right posture. And so it's actually very, very sad what happened to him. And, you know, this is one of the few people that encountered Jesus that was worse off after he encountered Jesus instead of being better. Most people, when they encountered Jesus, they were better for it. This guy was actually in worse condition from having encountered Jesus. And, he, and Jesus even promised him, he said, if you sell all you have, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven. He promised him treasure in heaven. This guy passed it up. This guy said, I don't want treasure in heaven. I want treasure on earth. And I wonder how many of us do that. Jesus says, if you'll give up, you'll give me your heart. You have to make some sacrifices, but if you give me your heart, you'll have treasure in heaven. And we look at that and say, well, that doesn't know. I don't know what that is. That doesn't make sense to me. I can't tangibly touch that. So we ignore it for the sake of having treasure on earth and, and keeping those idols that we have in our own lives on this earth. And that's exactly what this guy did. So what we have to understand is that we will never be good enough. Never be good enough on our own. It's not about having the right posture. We will never be good enough. We don't impress God with our posture. In fact, Psalm 51 tells us that we were sinners from conception. From conception. You know, the day sin came into this world, the goodness of man vanished. It was the most amazing magic act that's ever happened in the history of the world. All goodness was gone the moment sin entered the world. And we are actually born sinners. In fact, like I said, the psalmist said we're actually conceived sinners. So no matter how good your parents were, how much they loved Jesus, the moment you were conceived, you're a sinner. That's what the Bible tells us. But the beauty is, is that the freedom of the gospel is that we don't have to be good enough. Amen? We don't have to be good enough, church. We don't have to just have the right posture. And I'm not saying we get saved and we do whatever we want. The posture comes with it, but it's not, the, it's not the root of our salvation. It's the fruit of our salvation. And so the gospel gives, sets us free from having to be good enough. One of the best verses in all the Bible, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. He's, it's Apostle Paul. He says, for it was by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. Can I get an Amen. It is not from yourself. Your posture will never get you saved. It will never impress Jesus. Never. Because it's not about your posture. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. And then he answers the question, why? The reason he did that was so that no one could boast. There's no reason for us to ever be arrogant or proud of the fact that we're saved because we didn't do anything to deserve it. We're receiving this free gift that he chose to give us because he loves us so much. And see, here's the deal. I think I'm, t I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here because most of us in this room and listening online probably know what it means to be saved, to get saved. We know how to get saved, right? We, we, if you've been to church long enough, you know how to get saved. The problem with so many Christians is that we don't know how to live saved. We get saved, but then we want to have the posture rather than living the real gospel, 
living the true gospel that God has called us to live. It's either that or there's some of us that just struggle with just being on the fringe of the faith. Like I'm not, I don't really want to give a whole lot. I just don't want to go to hell. And so we have people that are living on the fringe that don't really want to give anything to being saved. And that is not the gospel. This man came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Some of us would say, what's the least I can do to inherit eternal life? That's not the question. The question is not what is the least I can do. That is absolutely not the real gospel. The real gospel is for those who know that they desperately need a savior on day 5,000 of being saved as much as they did on day one. That there's never a moment, there's never a second in our life that we don't need a savior. It's not a one-time experience where you come to an altar and you get saved and then you walk the rest of your life just telling everybody, yeah, I'm a Christian. It's about, the Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. You need a savior every single day. You need to live the life. The Bible tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. That, means, that tells me it's not a one-time event. Now, don't misquote me or take me wrong here. I'm not saying you have to get saved every day. Okay? We don't have to get saved. You don't lose your salvation every night when you go to bed and have to get saved in the morning. But it's also not the other extreme where we do say a prayer and get saved and we just walk away and do our thing and come to church when we can and try to give the posture of a good Christian. The real gospel is so, so much more than that. And it starts with understanding that we are not going to be good enough. We will never, ever be good enough. You know, the, uh, the Western gospel has really done us a disservice in the church. And I'm not here to rip on America on July 4th weekend. That would be very, very uncool. <laughs> I love my country passionately. I've been in over 30 countries in my life, and some of them I spent a significant amount of time in. And I can tell you without a question, this is my favorite country I've ever been in by far. And I love being an American, and I'm proud to be an American, and I love being part of this great nation. But the gospel the Western version of the gospel has really done us a disservice, church, and we have to be very, very careful with it because the Western version is about having this salvation that costs us almost nothing. It's about getting saved and, you know, living your life, but then, you know, being a Christian and really just, I mean, the biggest sacrifice most Christians in the United States will ever make is coming to a church on Sunday morning and missing a football game and maybe giving some money in the offering. And that's not what the gospel is. Ask Christians in China what it costs to be a Christian there. You get saved in China. You go to church in China on a Sunday morning, you're taking your life in your hands. You go to church in the Middle East on a Sunday morning, you're taking your life in your hands. You go to church in places in Africa on a Sunday morning, you are taking your life in your hands. In, in a lot of places, if you get, become a true Christian, your family is ostracizing you forever. In fact, for a lot of them, it's an honor to kill you. Your own family that's what the gospel is. It is about giving up everything to be with Jesus. But in the States, we, we're so blessed that we can get saved and it doesn't even have to really change our life a whole lot. You know? Except for the, the few posturing things that we think we need to do. But in reality, that's not the real gospel. I want to talk to you about the real gospel. And I'm going to give you three aspects of what it is as I get through this message today. First aspect of the real gospel is that you get a new heart. You get a new heart. Congratulations. When you get saved, you get a new heart. But what you do with that, it's going to be up to you. You know why you get a new heart? Because yours is no good. 
And mine is no good. I'm not blaming anybody else. We're all. None of us have a good heart. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us very, very clearly what we should think of our own heart. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's your heart. Deceitful. I think some versions say deceitfully wicked above all things. That's why we have to have a new heart. You may say, well, that's Old Testament. All right. Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, he said, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do. But the things I don't want to do, I do. He said, I am the worst of all sinners. That was a guy that met Jesus face to face, had a miraculous conversion experience. Yet when he talked about his own heart, he said, mm-hmm, my heart's no good. I'm. The closer he got to Jesus, the more wretched he realized his real heart was. We need a new heart. And, you know, God prophesied, or Ezekiel prophesied, way back, hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, prophesied about the, the new covenant, Jesus coming. The Lord spoke through him in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's a wonderful promise. He says, I, but we don't need a new heart if our heart is good. But our heart's not good. We have a heart of stone. And without the transformation power of the Holy Spirit in our life, that'll never get better. You're never going to be able to try hard enough to be a good enough person. It's not in you. Your DNA is the wrong DNA to be able to even do it. It's, but when, when God changes your heart, when he gives you that new heart, instead of wickedness coming out of your heart, it actually becomes a spring of life. Living water will flow. In fact, those are the words of Jesus. Jesus said in John 7, 38, he said, anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Mm. That's a beautiful word. Beautiful promise. And I want to I I encourage you guys today. If you don't hear anything else I, hear, I say today, hear this. When Jesus talks about living water flowing from our heart, that is the life-giving, the, the, the life nature of God flowing out of us into others, in our society, in our circle of influence, in our job, wherever it is. That's what Jesus is talking about there. Rivers of living water flowing out of you instead of the dead heart of stone, okay? If you hear that, you say, well, that's not me. Living water is not flowing out of my life. I just don't see it. I put on a good show. I'm postured well, but I just don't see it. It's not coming out, and I don't even really completely know why. I just, when you say rivers of living water flowing out of my heart, that's not me. And if, it is, if that is you today, don't misunderstand me. The answer to that is not to try to be a better Christian. That's not the answer. It's not to say, you know what, Pastor Reagan, you're right. You're right. I need to be better. I'm going to set my alarm clock for 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm going to get up, and I'm going to read my Bible for two hours before work. And I'm going to make sure I come to church all four Sundays every month, and I'm going to come on Wednesday nights and just sit in the parking lot and pray. And I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And we have those moments in our life, don't we, where we think, oh, I just need to be better. Man, I need to be better. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, man, I just need to be in church more. I need to get in church. I, don't, I haven't been going enough. I need to get in church more. And again, it comes from a heart of wanting to be better. But it's a futile experience. It's a futile attempt to try to appease God or posture ourselves in a way that God would look at us and say, yeah. Because if you're saying that, oh, I need to get church more, I need to get church more, that's just guilt. That's just wanting to appease that guilt that we feel for not being in church. That's what the rich young ruler did. God's not looking for that. He's not looking for us to appease our guilt 
of not being good enough. He just wants our life. You know, I'd rather you say instead of I need to go to church more, I'd rather you say, like, I need to give my heart to Jesus more. I need to lay myself down. There's doors in my heart that I haven't let him in. I want to fling those doors wide open and let him in. Let him have his way. Whatever those secret hidden places are, that he would have his way in every area of my life. That's what he wants. He wants to give us a new heart. But here, here's the thing. And this is the good news. Because some of you are probably thinking, man, I don't know how I'm going to get, get a new heart, change my heart. You can't do it. You can't change your heart. You cannot, you could try for a week or two, you might hold out for a month. You cannot change your own heart. Only God can change your heart. And he actually, that's what the Bible tells us, he gives us a new heart. But even in that, the Apostle Paul, he tells us, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do, I don't want to do. Even in that, that other heart, that heart of stone is still trying to get its way. It's still, it's not like it, it lays down on the ground and dies and you got a full heart transplant. That's part of it. But that, that heart of stone is always trying to creep its way back in your chest. It's always trying to have its way. It's never going to stop. It's never, ever, ever going to stop until the day you meet Jesus face to face. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Everything is going to be a party. But until then, that heart of stone, that wicked heart from Jeremiah 17 is going to keep trying to get its way back into your life. So you have to have God to change that heart and to help you to live in that way. Psalm 37.4 gives us a great clue. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Beautiful verse. Also one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. Preachers have used this to push the prosperity gospel all day, every day, and it makes me sick. Because that is not what he is saying. He is not saying, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you everything you ever wanted. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, delight yourself in the Lord, and the Lord will actually change your desires. He'll give you his desires. He'll make the things that you want are the same things he wants. It doesn't mean delight yourself in the Lord and, oh, I have a hankering for a Mercedes. I guess I'll go get it. It's not what that means. It means he's going to change you because we need to be changed, don't we? So as we delight ourselves in him, that word delight there means to, to find your happiness in him. Where do you find your happiness besides God? doesn't mean we can't find happiness anywhere else in life. God wants us to enjoy the fruits of life and the good things in life. But our, happy, our true, the root, the foundation of our happiness cannot be in anything other than him. It can't be in anything. If it is, you're going to always struggle with that wicked heart wanting to have its way. But as we delight in him, he gives us the desires of our heart. So we don't have to try to figure it out. He'll start to change us. As I pursued him more in my life and determined that I was going to find my worth in him, the things that I thought I cared about become less and less important. And they're not even all sins. You know, if you'd have told the 25-year-old version of me that by the time I was in my mid-40s, I wasn't going to care about sports or movies or television, I'd have said, you're nuts. And here I am, I don't even care. Like, it hasn't affected my life one bit that there hasn't been any sports. And I know some of you guys are ready to run me out of this place right now by even saying that. But, but it just hasn't because I find my, my happiness, my contentment, my joy is in him. Now, that doesn't mean sports and movies are bad. It's fine, but it becomes less important. I believe it's God just turning my desires more towards him. I just want to focus on him. I just want to talk about him. I want to think about him. I want him to consume my mind because he's the one that really can change me. If we are finding anything out from this season, from this pandemic and this virus, it's, it's, it's that there is nothing in this world that we could put our trust in our hope in, our faith in, 
that's going to sustain us. Nothing. There's so many things right now that are, that are just crumbling or suffering that we would have never in a million years dreamed could have happened in this country. And yet in the blink of an eye, it's like it's, some of it's been taken away. Let this season show you that our hope, our happiness, our delight needs to be in him and in nothing else. In nothing else. All right, so the next one, the next aspect of the real gospel is to fear God. This is a real popular topic in church. Let's talk about fearing God. We need to have a healthy fear of our God. And I feel like it's something that is really taking a backseat in the church. The reverence of God has taken a backseat. But if we want to really live the gospel, we really want that heart to be changed. There has to be a reverence for him, a healthy fear of God, of understanding who we are in comparison to who he is, his holiness, his greatness. Man, we sang that song today, Great Are You, Lord. I'm, man, I'm just, when I sing that, I just, I get emotional because, you know, the, the song says it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. Like, do you really, do we think about that? that the air we breathe is from him. That everything we have is because of him. And he's so holy. He's so mighty and high and lifted up. And we are so nothing. Yet he gave up everything so that we could be with him. It's so amazing. And I know we think, you know, there's that, that hyper grace movement that says, oh, we're under grace. We don't have to fear God. You know, God's happy time, fun time God now because of grace. It's just not true. Grace is wonderful. And I am a huge, huge proponent of grace. Because that's how we're saved because of his grace, but it doesn't mean that we lose our reverence for him or our awe of him because that keeps our heart in line with him. Jesus' own words in Matthew 10, verse 28, he said, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is telling us to fear God. If, if it's good enough for Jesus to say it, I'm going to pay attention. Fear God. Have reverence for God. Live with a reverence for him. Society has completely gotten away from any fear of God. We are in a post-Christian society. It's, it's over. Okay? It may come back. Lord willing, it'll come back. But right now, it's over. There's no reverence for God in our society. He's actually a punchline. And it's encouraged to use Jesus' name as a cuss word and say GD. And there's, it's gone. It's gone. But we have to be careful in the church to not let that lower our reverence for God. I don't think we're going around cussing, but I do think that because of how society has acted lately, that it causes us to lower our reverence because we don't want to look a certain way. It's gotten to where even in, in Christian circles sometimes you feel weird if you're talking about the faithfulness or the goodness of God or talking about his majesty or how amazing he is in some circles. God willing, none in here, but there might be. You maybe have Christian people in your life that you don't feel comfortable talking about the amazing beauty and majestic nature of God because of society has brought that down and caused us to not want to or not be able to feel like we can talk about it. And we've lost our awe of God. And I want to challenge you today, church, and encourage you. Let's get our awe back. Let's get our awe back. Let's meditate on how amazing he is and not meditate on how amazing our favorite entertainer is or our favorite athlete or our favorite preacher. Let's meditate on how amazing he is. And it takes us to that place where we just think, 
get to where we just stand in awe of him. I remember that song from the 90s, that worship song. I stand, I stand in awe of you. Holy God, to whom all praise is due. Such a beautiful hymn. And I, when I, I remember being younger and singing that song and just thinking, wow, God, you're so awesome. You're so amazing. You're so majestic. How in the world can you love me? But yet he does. We need to get our all back. Philippians 2.12 the Apostle Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's how we're supposed to approach our relationship with God. Now, again, I'm not saying having this terror, this fear of God like that, but a reverence, an awe-inspiring mindset that just can't believe that this God that created everything really, really loves me and cares about me. Acts 9.31 Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, meaning the church, multiplied. As the first believers walked in the fear of the Lord, the church multiplied. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't. I don't believe in coincidences in the Bible. It's not. The church multiplied because of the fear of God. We've dumbed ourselves down to some degree because of our fear of man. When the church or the world really needs to see the church having a fear of God. And if they do, the church will multiply. We don't have to figure it out. But the church wants to see that we respect our God. That we don't treat him like he's just our buddy. But that he's our God. I know the Bible tells us, Jesus, he says that, I'm, that we're his friend. And I'm thankful for that. But that, that's one aspect of it. The, the major focus for us needs to be that he is our God. That he is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of honor and respect. The, the Lord's Prayer Starts. I, I said this a couple weeks ago, the Lord's Prayer starts with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus tells us to pray and say, honored be your name, God. We honor your name. That's how we are to approach our relationship with him. But unfortunately, the fear of man has taken over to where, even as followers of Jesus, sometimes we're more concerned about what others think than what God thinks. And we need to get away from that. God help us to get away from that. Let's not be afraid to, to reverence him, to be in awe of who he is. I, this week, I've been, I've been so blown away just by the goodness of God. You know, we, uh, my family's here. The day before they started to show up, our washing machine started leaking underneath. Of course, it always happens right before you're going to have 17 house guests, you know. And uh, so I called a repair guy, and he, I told him the situation. He diagnosed it over the phone. He said, oh, that's, that's going to be at least $250, probably $350 to repair it. Then it's still an 11-year-old washing machine. So I told Joy, I said, let's just go to Lowe's, and we'll get one. And just bite the bullet, you know. And so we went there and, and uh, wanted to get one that would fit on the same pedestal things that we have now, you know. And that you have to get the same brand and style and whatever. And so walked in and found one right in the front. Same color, everything. And it was on sale because it was July 4th. I was like, praise God, that's good. Thank you, Jesus. And so as I'm waiting for the salesman to come over, which, you know, at those big box stores, it took about a day and a half, I think. And... Uh, as I'm waiting, Joy's like, I'm going to roam over here. She roams over and goes over to the row where they have appliances that people have returned because they just didn't want to change their mind, whatever. And she motions me to come over there, and I go over there. The exact same washing machine, another $150 off. And, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it's money. It's not a big deal. I mean, I think we ended up paying 500 bucks for it, you know, when it was originally $1,000 or something like that. That's a, that's a huge blessing. My thing for that has been more since then, just my response and like I was literally laying in bed like two nights in a row and just going, man, God is so good. He is so stinking good to us. He is so faithful. He's so worthy 
of our life and of our worship. And again, like even if, if I had to pay $3,000 for a washing machine, he's still worthy. But there's just something about like just knowing how good he is and how much he cares about us and, 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 and that everything in our life would just draw us to him and draw us to see his goodness in every situation. You know what? He's good in a situation where you can save 500 bucks on a washing machine. He's also good in the midst of a situation where someone's dying. You, uh, most of you, or a lot of you know Mr. Cleveland Gilliard, wonderful saint of God, one of the most amazing, beautiful men you'll ever meet. He used to sit over here, usually early service. Well, he, he died just a few days ago from cancer. He went home to be with Jesus. And uh, he's been in hospice for a few weeks, and I've been talking to his wife, Mamie. Uh, every few days, I've talked to her on the phone. And what I've seen with her talking to her on the phone was she saw God's goodness in this situation. She was, every time I talked to her, they'd end up turning into this little worship set that we were having together. Like, who could praise God the loudest? And we were hallelujah and praising God and thanking him for his goodness. She was so thankful that God has been so good to her. Well, I just talked to her this morning again. And he, he passed away about two days ago. I talked to her this morning on the phone for about 20 minutes. And she's still the, saying the exact same things. She's saying, I just can't believe how good my God is. I can't believe how amazing he is. The fact that he gave me 10 years with Cleveland, I'm so thankful for it. And Cleveland was so good. And he, one, of his few, or one of his last words was, he looked up at her and he said, you're so beautiful. And she said, and I had my hair all pulled up in a weird thing. And I had a bleach spot on my head. I, she said, I look terrible. And he said, you're so beautiful. And she said, it just blessed my heart for him to say that to me. And, and not long after that, he passed away. And she's rejoicing in the Lord. Let me tell you something. That, that attitude that she has had over the last couple weeks, that didn't start in the last couple weeks. That was her life before. This is just the fruit of the life that she has lived, being able to see God and his goodness, even in the midst of losing her husband. Well, having to say, see you later to her husband, I should say, because he did get healed completely. He's rejoicing now and dancing on the streets with Jesus. So he won, but obviously she's sad and she's going to be mourning, but she's rejoicing in him and how good he is. We need to have the fear of God in our life. We need to see his goodness and his majesty in everything. Walking out your back door and seeing trees and grass and the clouds when a storm's brewing, you see the clouds swirling. God is so amazing, so powerful, so incredible. You know the cure for the fear of man? It's the fear of God. Charles Spurgeon said, the only cure for the fear of man is the fear of God. If we will reverence God, the fear of man will start to melt away in our lives. That's what he wants for us. Proverbs 14, 27, it says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. What a beautiful verse. This will change your life if you get this. Change your life. Because when God is in his rightful place in our life, it will compel us to turn away from those things that are snares in our life. When he's in his right place, when we fear him, he will compel us to turn away from those things. It's not about trying to be better. It's about the, the desires that we have will be turned to be his desires. So those things that would normally draw us away as we fear him, as we reverence him, those things start to melt away in our life. And we want to live for him. All right, I got to get to the last one. The, the third aspect of the real gospel is to remain. And that word comes from John 15. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do 
nothing. Nothing. We should be plastering that last sentence everywhere we walk. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is not just about salvation, church. Because you could say, well, I'm saved, so I am with him. He says, remain in me. Remain. That's a, that's a lifestyle. That's a daily choice of living in him, of living for him. He says, remain in me. It's not a one-time experience. It's meant to be a lifelong decision. It's meant to be where we would abide. One, some versions say abide in him. That word abide means to conform. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans not to conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The one place we can conform is to him. He's saying, remain in me. He saw, this is the chapter about the vine and the branches. Such a beautiful chapter. It gives us such a great picture of what it should look like as a follower of Jesus. Because he gives the vine and they got all these branches coming off the vine. And he says, you're a vine. You're attached to the branch. You stay attached to the branch. Remain attached to the branch. That implies to me that I can separate myself from that branch, from that vine, anytime I want. Jesus is warning us. He's saying, remain. Stay. Stay attached. And here's the beauty of it, church. The branch doesn't have to work to bear fruit. The fruit just happens because the branch is attached to the vine. Because the vine is the one that's given the life to the branch to bear that fruit. He promises us that. He says, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. You will be living the real gospel. Not the half gospel or the fake gospel. You'll be living the real one. You know, if you plant a, a peach tree... You want it to bear much fruit. You're not okay if you come out and you see two peaches on it, right? You want much fruit. You don't want to just see leaves either. Leaves aren't fruit. Leaves are the posturing. We don't want to, you don't want to see the posturing of the tree trying to impress you like, hey, look at all my leaves. Like, mm-mm. Get me some fruit. I want some peaches so I can make some peach ice cream, right? God wants us to bear fruit, and we will bear fruit if we remain in him. This is the beauty of that verse. It, it can be easily missed. But he says, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. God has a part to play in this too. He promises us if we remain in him, he will remain in us. You know, that life is full of double standards, isn't it? In your workplace, you probably experience double standards. Probably experience double standards at school, in your relationships, in marriage. Not my marriage, mine's perfect, but you guys probably do. Experience double standards all over life, all the time. And they're frustrating sometimes, aren't they? Somebody else puts something on you that they don't have to do. Well, God doesn't believe in double standards. If God says, do it, and I'll do my part, you can know he's going to do it. He's saying, all you got to do is remain in me. Don't posture yourself. Don't worry about your posture. Remain in me. That's about your heart. Remain in me. He is not a church building. I'm thankful you guys come to church, and please keep coming. But this is not something that impresses God. You could be in here every Sunday for 50 years and never give him your heart. That's not what he wants. He says, remain in me. Give me your heart. Give me every last little crevice of your heart. And I promise you, you will bear fruit. You will not have to worry about feeling like you're not good enough because it's not going to be measured in the way that you would measure it apart from me. But you will bear fruit. And you'll be excited about the fruit you bear because you'll start to see that, oh my gosh, I'm bearing fruit. I got peaches coming. How's that happening? It's because you're staying attached to him. You're remaining in him. You're giving him your heart. You're giving him everything. Thankfully, 
the responsibility is not totally on us. Our part, church, in the real gospel is coming to him and saying, my life is yours. It's all yours. Everything. Not holding back anything. And that is a challenge. It sounds simple. Like, oh, that's all I got to do? Okay, done. It's not like emptying out your bank account saying, here you go, God. Because we can empty out our heart one minute and an hour later, whatever we emptied out is fighting its way to get back in there. And say, no, 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 no. Don't, don't listen to Pastor Reagan. He's, he doesn't know anything. He's a northern guy. He's only been pastoring for two months. He doesn't know anything. Don't listen to him. You have all kinds of things that will try to get those things back in or, or try to close those doors back. Say, no, Jesus, you know what? I, I got caught up in emotion this morning at church, but at the end of the day, I'm not really willing to give you that. Don't get caught up in that. Open the doors of your heart and say, God, there's no area of my heart you can't come in. He knows it anyway. You know, the, the greatest fallacy in all of us in our minds, the things that, that, that really surprise me even about myself sometimes is thinking that there's things about me that God doesn't know if I don't say anything. <laughs> That's hilarious. He literally created the innermost parts of our being, the Bible says. There's nothing he doesn't know. So we might as well open it up to him so he can actually do something about it. Because the Bible says he stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't bust through the door. He's not going to, by, by just sitting here and listening long enough to a sermon, he's not going to go pounding through and forcing everything on you like you might be hoping he does. He's going to just stand there and knock forever. His arm doesn't get tired. If that one gets tired, he's got a left hand too. We'll just knock forever, but it's up to us to open that door and to leave it open for him. Would you stand with me this morning as we, as we close? I want to pray for us. God knows we need prayer, amen? Here's the thing, church. We're talking about goodness and not being good enough. When the Holy Spirit invades our life, when we give him full access to our life and he changes our heart, we, we start to bear fruit and we're we're seeing things in our life. That's a good thing. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be good. You know, we'll never be good enough, but it doesn't mean that goodness doesn't come out of us when we are living for him. Goodness is actually a fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. So it doesn't mean we just don't, we can never be good. The thing is, we're never gonna be good enough. And the goodness is not about us posturing ourselves to impress Jesus. It's about fruit coming out of our life that is fully dedicated to him and fully open to him. So if you're comfortable this morning, as we pray, I think we need to respond to God. I know we can't do an altar call up here right now because we can't distance the way we'd like to, but we can do it in our seats. Amen? Because the altar is really in our heart. So I'm going to ask you to respond today as I pray. If you're comfortable, I'd like for you to lift your hands as just a way of responding and receiving this prayer. Let's just give ourselves to God completely. Father, we love you today. We thank you for your word that sets us free. God, your word sets us free. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to be good enough. God, we don't have to be good enough. We know that you just want our heart. God, we, we repent all the posturing we've done because we all do it we repent of it God we don't want to posture ourselves in a way to try to impress you we want to give you our heart so that there's nothing you can't say to us that we wouldn't respond that if you said sell all you have and give all your money to the poor that we would do it because we love you and we trust you that much Lord would you do that work in our hearts we want to open the doors of our heart today 
every door, because we know you're knocking. We open every one of them, Lord. There's no area of our life that you do not have access to. And God, whatever those deep, dark places are in our hearts, if there's, if there's secret sin or if it's just a feeling or if it's just bitterness or unforgiveness or anger or hatred or resentment, whatever it is, Lord, that where we have closed you off and not let you have your way, we open those doors to you today, Jesus. We open our hearts to you completely and totally. Holy Spirit, come have your way in every one of our lives. Have your way, Holy Spirit. We don't want our way. We've tried it our way. We're not going to do it anymore. We're going to let you have your way. Come, have your way in our life, Lord. Give us a new heart and let that new heart squash the heart of stone. As we, as we crucify our flesh every day, Lord, let that new heart breathe life. Let our lives flow with living water coming out of us. Mm. Jesus, we thank you. God, I pray that you would cause us to fear you, to reverence you, that you'd bring, give us our awe back, that we'd be in awe of you and how good you are, how amazing you are, God, that you're the only one that is worthy of our worship, that is worthy of our honor, that is worthy of our praise, worthy of glory. It's all you, Jesus. And I pray you'd help us to remain, that we would remain in you, Lord. We're thankful for the promise that when we remain in you, you remain in us. Help us, God. Help us, God. As we leave this place, it's easy right now, but we gotta go out in that parking lot and go home. Help us tonight, tomorrow, and every other day to remain in you. You have our hearts, Lord. You can have them. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You are good. You are good. You are good. We trust you, Lord. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Can you give God praise this morning? Just give him your best praise this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord.